pray now that you would do the work in this hour that only you can do to comfort, to convict, to encourage. Father, as we open your word, be with us and teach us and remind us of who Christ is yet again. We pray in your name. Amen. The question before us today is simple. How do I live a life of urgency? Not panic, but urgency without apathy or anxiety. How do I live a life of urgency without apathy or anxiety? Uh, Elizabeth was, I believe, 10 on December 17th when her house burned to the ground. A kerosene heater went off and kind of exploded. Her dad was up doing some law stuff and tried to turn it off, and it just fed it more and more and more. He took a chair, and he tried to push it out of the door, and it hit the sill of the porch, and he couldn't push it any further. Actually, the chair burned up. It was a wooden chair, burned up as he was pushing it. He said to Ruth, uh, Elizabeth's mom, go run, get the rest of the people out, get the kids out, and the Uh, Fire started to go up and over his head, burned through the phone line, so they couldn't call. They went to pick up, and they couldn't call the people, and so they got the four brothers and sisters and a cat out, and they sat in the front yard in December in northern Virginia and watched their entire house and all of its possessions burn to the ground in bare feet. Now, when there's a fire in your house, there's a sense of urgency, right? We have to get out, and we have to get out now. There is no time for apathy. You can't say, no, I need to collect these pictures. I I need to get that other cat. I I need to go get my wedding dress. I've got to go get my passports out. I've got to get this out first. There's no time for that. There's urgency to the task. There's something on fire. And at the same time, we know that we're not supposed to live with anxiety. There's a reason why it's illegal for me right now to yell F-I-R-E. Uh, We're safe, everybody's safe, there's nothing on fire here. But there's a reason why you can't in a crowded room or a theater yell fire. Because if you do, it creates anxiety, which creates panic. And panic creates carnage. And the unfortunate example that we have today is the anxiety that... The Koreans felt to see that local pop star who's making an appearance at the bar. We might not see him create panic and create a carnage. And last I checked this morning, there's 153 people dead in a stampede in Korea because there was this anxiety and this panic to go see this person. So anxiety creates this panic and apathy is just as bad. How do we live, though, a life of urgency without falling into either apathy or falling into anxiety? Well, we're going to see. First of all, let's talk about apathy. Apathy, the word, comes from, it's actually Greek, ah, pathos. Pathos is to have compassion. Ah is a negative connotation, so it's against compassion, against pathos. In other words, it's somebody without feeling. Somebody who's just lost emotion. They've just lost desire. They've just kind of checked out. That's apathy. And there's three ways it can happen. It can happen from not working, from overworking, or from hard working. First of all, it can happen from not working. You know, like Pink Floyd. I've become comfortably numb. I've just kind of checked out. I'm 55 years old, and I still live in my mom's basement. 
and I'm going to play Call of Duty uh, for the rest of my life, hoping that one day I'll get good enough to beat that 13-year-old kid uh, across the country. And I just, I don't want to apply for the job because I feel like I've gotten rejected so many times and I feel like a failure. I mean, that's the typical, like how we think of apathy, but it's more than that. It can come from not working. It can also come from overworking where you're working so hard, you burn yourself out and you just quit caring. I'm the only one you've worked so hard for that company and you'll see other people working as hard. And finally, you become the person, the guy or the girl that says, oh, I'm done. I've been working so hard for this practice. I've been working so hard for this company, for this church. I'm, I'm so burnt out now because I've overworked that I don't even care anymore. Happened to a pastor, a friend of mine. He, uh, he burned himself out. He overworked. And he burned himself out and he started phoning it in. And, and for him, it looked like, Saturday, i got to prepare another sermon. I'm just going to find somebody who's already preached on this text and plagiarize it. And he did that on a number of occasions, not just four times, but four blocks for like a period of months he did it. And then they caught him, he confessed, and that happened four different times. And he was telling me all about it, how he got burnt out and just started phoning it in and became apathetic about preaching. And he said, Andy, I'm so sorry. I said, man, you don't need to apologize to me. You didn't do anything wrong to me. You didn't offend me. I'm sorry for you. He said, no, I'm so sorry. I never thought your sermons were good enough to plagiarize. That's what he said. I just went with Tim Keller and Sinclair Ferguson. I was like, well, nobody knows me. You should have gone with me. You probably would have never gotten caught. Hard working. Hard working is how we get apathetic. I've established the right to take the rest of the day off. You know, I, I, I paid, I've worked hard to be at this resort. Go fill up my glass. Uh, I worked hard for this vacation, for this cruise. I, I, I'm going to be completely apathetic. I'm not going to pick up any trash. I'm not going to do anything over and above. I've worked too hard to get here. I'm a senior in high school. All you freshmen plebes, you serve me. I worked hard to get where I am. I worked hard to become this old in life. I'm a senior citizen now. I'm a senior partner now. I'm a senior pastor now. I've worked hard to be here. Now I deserve to be apathetic. And that's actually what we see in this text. Luke chapter 12, verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist of the abundance of possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry, be apathetic, relax. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. A couple notes. We'll apply it. We'll move on to the next one. The first note is this. Uh, this person wanted God just to make them happy. And we have to ask ourselves if that's our relationship with the Lord as well. God, I just want you to 
to bless what I'm doing. Just arbitrate my claim here. Just adjudicate it, if you would. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Just, could you just be here, God, to solve my problem so I could be comfortable in this world? And then the second thing I want you to see is verse 15. I don't know who needs to hear this, but I'm pretty sure it's a majority of us. This is the second person of the Trinity speaking. This is God himself. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. The reason why I need to say that is because we live in America. And there's billions of dollars spent in marketing to tell you that you have to have X. This sweater, this car, uh, this game, whatever it is. You're, we're all swimming in those waters so much. We don't even know how much we're swimming in them. And here God is saying, let me, just tell, let me tell you something that's true. I am the God of the universe. Life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. It just doesn't work. Now, he's not speaking about against wealth. He's not speaking about being rich or successful. Not at all. He's just saying that's not where your heart can be. Here's what else I want you to see. The seeking of apathy, paradoxically, is actually exhausting. Look at what he says. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And then I'll be able to say to my soul, so relax, now you've made it. But that's exhausting. I've got to tear down, I've got to raise all of my barns, and then I've got to build a whole new set. That's exhausting, and it's expensive. The pursuit of that, that you'll get to a place where you now have eight weeks of vacation, you now have ten weeks of vacation. I finally got there. My kids are out of the house. My kids are out of diapers. I finally have my 529 fully funded. I finally got my 401k fully funded. We finally got that second home. I finally got there. I finally got married. Finally got divorced. I finally got that person to like me. We live our lives hoping that one day we'll finally arrive and we'll be able to take some time off. And that's a lie as well. And it's exhausting. Look what God says, verse 20. And again, this is Jesus speaking, but God said to him in this parable, fool, this night your soul is required of you. In other words, follow me. Follow what I say to do. Follow my claims. Follow my truths. Follow me. Now, how do you do that? The first thing is this. You have to treasure Christ. If you want to get out of your apathy, you have to treasure Christ. He says at verse 34, he lays up treasure for himself, 21 first, and is not rich towards God. And then in verse 34, if you look ahead, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. One of the keys of the Christian life is learning how to treasure Christ. Um, there are a few treasures in this world that we kind of know, and they usually come in the form of trophies. And there's two trophies that most people know. Uh, the claret jug for whoever wins the British Open, even if you're not a golfer, you can probably see it in your mind's eye, and the Stanley Cup. Uh, both of those trophies, you just kind of, you, you know, you know. And uh, both of them, interestingly, when somebody wins the Claret Jug, I can't speak for the Stanley Cup because I don't watch hockey, but when somebody wins the Claret Jug, you will <laughs> guaranteed, 
After they get it, they'll grab it and they'll look at it and they'll start turning in it because there's names engraved on the claret jug. And somewhere along the way, when they know that person is going to win, they engrave their name. And there their name is, besides all the other names, all their other heroes. And then with the Stanley Cup and the Claret Jug, they take both of them and they fill them up with your beverage of choice, whatever that is, and everybody drinks out of it. Uh, Not just the team, not just the individual, but the wives that were helpful to them in the process, and uh, the trainers, and the coaches, and the agents, and everybody gets a chance to drink out of it. It's this celebratory treasure that everybody gets to drink from. And it's close, but it's different from what Christ does, because what Christ does is he wins it for us. And he says, and I'm going to put your name on it. I'm going to write your name in the book of life. And I'm going to drink this cup of God's wrath down to its very dregs. And I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to drink all of that. So you get to drink out of the cup of my treasure, the cup of blessing. So that you get to remember, you get to drink out of mercy. You get to drink out of forgiveness. You get to drink out of love and peace. You get to drink of the treasures that I have won for you. And the cup will always be full and it will never be empty. And there's enough to go around. It's the treasure. Now, when that happens, friends, when you realize you have your treasure in Christ, you can let go of the things of this world. Uh, William Borden uh, was the heir of Borden Milk, multi, 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 multi-millionaire, uh, probably worth half a billion in today's money. Um, not really sure. I'd have to do that study. 1904, he took a gap year and traveled around the world and became convicted about all the poverty around the world. In 1905, after his gap year, he went to Yale. And one of his classmates in Yale said of him, He was far ahead of us spiritually than any, far, far ahead of us. He had already given his heart in full surrender to Christ, and he had really done it. That's what the classmates said. Like, we all got to college at Yale, and we're all trying to figure out if we're going to follow Christ or not. William Borden gets this, you know, heiress. He gets there, and they're like, oh, he's already sold out for Christ. Like, wow. Like, he's... He's already all in. And in his diary, he famously wrote, no reserve after he gave all of his money away. And then he left. He was trying to get to Mongolia, but he never made it to Mongolia. He ended up in Egypt, and he wrote no retreat. And then he died, contracted a disease, and died just a few months later. And he wrote in his Bible before he left, before he left this world, No remorse. No remorse. It was worth it. It was a life well lived. It was a life given to following Christ because he is my treasure. Now, here's the problem. Sometimes we're uh, apathetic. Sometimes we're just anxious. Uh, The World Health Organization says that there's been a 25% increase of anxiety and depression since COVID. And before COVID, it was increasing, and then anxiety and depression have only increased even more. There's a couple scholars that are trying to figure this out on the academic side. 
Margaret Wheatley uh, Ritter and Wellman out of Chicago are all trying to work on this. And a lot of them are saying this. The problem, the reason why we're feeling so much anxiety and so much depression, and we're on edge. We live in America. We've got food. I mean, there's a billion places you can go to have food. We have clothes in our closet. We are not lacking anything. And we're so anxious and we're so depressed. Why? Well, what Wheatley says and others is this. We're now seeing that we're in permanent crisis. That we see problems all the time around the world. Seoul, Korea, uh, Crimea, uh, Russia, uh, poverty, the tsunami in Japan, uh, the earthquake in Nepal. Pick Pick anything. We see all of these crises all the time, and there's not a thing that we can do about it. But we're forced to look at it and take it in. So we become more and more anxious And then with social media, that just enables it, right? Because more and more, we're able to compare to others. I mean, I remember when Elizabeth and I were like in our 20s, and we'd go to a dinner party. And on the way home, she would say, and and not that she was being kind, in a a kind way, not in a judgmental way at all. So-and-so looked really beautiful tonight. And I always thought, that's a really trick question. Like, what do I say? (laughs) Yes, she did. Or, no, she's not, you know, so I just, uh, guys, uh, you just don't say anything. You just look ahead and don't, you know, don't say a word. You don't even try to move. You just lock your body down and and look ahead, 10 and 2, and don't say anything. And and -and so-and-so, she looked pretty tonight, too. That's all you do. But, you know, that was how it used to work. Oh, there's a couple people I can compare myself to at this dinner party, you know, and figure out kind of where I am in the social ranking. Now it's everybody. (laughs) You look on Instagram, you look on TikTok, you look on whatever. It's everybody you're always comparing to. And so our souls are anxious. That's why he says, Luke chapter 12, verse 22, and he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, or about your body, what you'll put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They neither have storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? If then you are not able to do as small of a thing as that, Why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown out into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat, what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom. These things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourself with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Just a few quick notes. First of all, consider the ravens, consider the birds. Anxiety actually doesn't help anything. What does it help? You don't add an hour to your life by worrying about something. 
Why spend all of your time worrying about something that you actually have zero control over, says the Lord? Why would you do that? And so here God is saying, look, when you get in that situation, remember that I'm your God. Don't waste your time. Look at me. Remember that I'm your treasure. Remember that I've already established everything for you. Remember that you can drink from this cup, this cup of blessing. Remember those things. Repent. Confess it. Come back to me. Fix your eyes on me. Have union with me. We'll see that here in a second. And then consider the lilies. Consider how they grow. They're not like Solomon in all of his glory. These little flowers, Solomon can't compare, and, and Solomon was rich. They're like, don't, don't even worry about Solomon. Let me put it in the way that we can understand. The richest guy in Greenville, or girl, we could probably figure out who it is. You get a couple of us together. There's only so many options. I, I think I could probably narrow it down to one of ten. There's no way to really objectify it, but we could, you know, I'd be within striking distance. But the richest person in Greenville could probably be bought two times over by Darla Moore from Columbia. Maybe, maybe not. She's given a lot away. And Darla Moore can be bought about 10 to 20 times over by any senior partner at Guggenheim, Appaloosa, or Goldman Sachs. Or the trust fund kid in the Hamptons. And those guys and girls can be bought a hundred times over by any one of a hundred sheiks in Saudi Arabia, right? And the sheiks in Saudi Arabia can be bought a billion times over plus some by God your Father in heaven who owns the earth and everything in it in the fullness of and owns the cattle on the thousand hills. And when you go outside, once these clouds clear away and you look up at the stars, he created it all, redeems it all, will call it all back to him and make all things new. And that's your God who knows you, who can't let a hair fall from the hair of your head without his will in heaven. Heaven. So what in the world do you have to be worried about? <laughs> Why in the world would you ever be anxious if those are true truths? You would only be anxious if you think, A, God doesn't have the resources, B, God doesn't care, or C, God doesn't know you. Well, back to the text, verse 30. For all the nations of the world seek after all these things, your father knows that you need them. And I take it a step further. He knows what you need. We don't even know what we need. And we want things that actually aren't useful or helpful to us. Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The first uh, kind of application point is treasure with Christ. The second one is union with Christ. Uh, when we're apathetic, we look at the, the treasures of Christ. When we're anxious, we have union with Christ. Alan Ehrenberg, um, who is a leading scholar on anxiety, said, it's uh, on the rise today because of increased feelings of inadequacy. And look, let me just say about anxiety, I get it. Like, I've struggled with panic attacks at three in the morning from uh, an anxious heart. Like, I'm, if you're there... I've been there with you. It's an increased feeling of inadequacy when success is attributed to and expected of the autonomous individual. What Ehrenberg says is this. 
like Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, once, once we removed the individual from the community and we said, you have to make it on your own and your identity is based on autonomy and how you do, everybody feels inadequate. Because there's always somebody richer, there's always somebody prettier, there's always somebody smarter, or you'll become prideful that you're doing it better than them. But it's a no man's game. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't work. Once you remove yourself from that, so how do you get community? Well, it starts with union with Christ. And then it's mystic sweet communion with those around the world. But it starts with this beautiful doctrine called union with Christ. That if you're a Christian... I'm not assuming everybody is, but let me tell you about how the Christian faith works. If you're a Christian, you're united with him in his death and in his resurrection. So that if you have a great day and you extend forgiveness and things happen that are wonderful, that's not of you, that's of him. And so in those great days, you say, God, thank you so much for the ways that you worked through me, how you allowed me to extend forgiveness to that person, how you allowed me to let go of that one thing, how you allowed me to give a kind word when I had a curse word thrown at me. And if you have a horrible day, you're united with him. And it's an invitation to intimacy. God, now I know what it's like to be misunderstood. Now I know what it's like to be betrayed like you were betrayed. Now I know what it's like to have your friends turn away from you. Now I know. It's an invitation to see life like you see it. In other words, Rankin Wilburn, uh, a friend who wrote the book Union with Christ, It's Worth a Buy, said this. I'm going to read it slow. I don't think I have it on the screen. Uh, In Christ, you are accepted. But that acceptance no longer has to be earned or maintained. It is granted by grace and guaranteed in Christ. See, let me pause there. If you feel like you have to grab it, if you have to get it, you have to get right with God, you have to get him to like you, then you'll always be worried you have to lose it. And what the gospel says is this, you're united with Christ. And because you're united with Christ, you don't even have to maintain it. It's guaranteed by grace and guaranteed in Christ. This doesn't mean you stop working, but it does mean you work in a totally new way. You no longer work for approval. You work from approval. Rankin, he was a pastor in L.A., and he would go on to tell this story of a girl in his church that had crippling anxiety, could not function. Goes to a party, always feels inadequate, never feels like she matches up, never felt like she was good enough. And then she got a job at Disneyland, being Minnie Mouse. And as soon as she put on that costume, she could go up to anybody. She could talk to anybody. Uh, She would initiate with kids. She would wave. And inside her mask, she said many times, inside her mask, she would be weeping Tears of joy. Because this is the person I always wanted to be, but I couldn't. But now she's clothed. And friends, that's what the clothing of Christ's righteousness does for us. You are clothed with Christ. So you can go up and you can forgive your neighbor. You can go up and you can bless somebody who curses you. You can go up and talk to somebody and not feel like you need to get your emotional needs met from the conversation, but you're there to serve them because you're clothed and you're united with Christ. And then quickly, urgency. 
So those are the two pitfalls. Urgency is how we live. And urgency, I don't mean panic. Um, I, I listen, you might not know this, or maybe you do. I listen to a lot of um, military podcasts because uh, it's one of the regrets of my life. It's not uh, serving in the military. And so I, I find myself listening to a lot of them. And uh, um, interestingly, when special ops are about to go in, Delta Force, you know, Recon, MARSOC, SEALs, whoever, when they're about to go in for a rescue, do you know what happens to most of them when they're in the Black Hawk helicopter going in for an infill? It's uncanny. Almost all of them take a nap. The urgency that they're about to go into doesn't mean they're panicked. It means they can actually be restful. It's the same reason Jesus could take a nap on the boat in the middle of the storm, right? He lived with such urgency, but he wasn't scared to peel away and go pray. And he wasn't scared to take a nap in the middle. But he lived with this urgency that all would come to know him. And so here we see in Luke chapter 12, verse 35, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from a wedding feast so that they may open the door once he comes in and knocks. Blessed are those servants who the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and will have them reclined at the table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. Uh, We'll close with this. The thing that you need to remember for urgency is longing for Christ. Not just union with Christ, but longing for Christ. When Elizabeth and I haven't connected, um, Elizabeth is my wife, by the way, uh, emotionally or cognitively or spiritually or physically, because we've just been roommates and keeping the plates going. And, And when that finally happens over a meal or a conversation and we're able to connect our hearts in a way. Oftentimes, one of us will say to the other one, I've missed you. I've been around her. I've been united with her. I haven't been gone on a trip, and she hasn't been gone. We've been around each other ad nauseum. But I've missed her. I've been longing for a deeper connection. And that's what longing for Christ is. And maybe some of you just need to start right there this afternoon, which is to say to Jesus, I know I've been united with me. I know you've never left me. I know you're never going to forsake me, but I've missed you. And maybe your heart needs to start to reimagine the longing of God, of what you're going to gain when you get to see him face to face. And what you're going to let go of, your cancer, your pain, your doubts, your trials. But what you receive from him, and maybe your heart needs to reimagine what that's going to be like so that you can long for him again. Because the irony of this is verse 37, he sees the servants ready and waiting. And he says, truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. That's the mystery and the majesty of our God. That he comes and he sees us longing for him and he says, I'm here. 
Y'all take a seat and I'll serve you. (laughs) It's unbelievable who our God is. And we get the privilege to know him and walk with him in this life. As Zwingli the Reformer says, our confidence in Christ does not make us lazy, negligent, or careless, but on the contrary, it awakens us, urges us on, and makes us active in living righteous lives and doing good, for there's no self-confidence to compare with this. So, Father, your church, not just this one, but your church as a whole, largely in the South, needs urgency. We can be overly apathetic, not trying to move your kingdom forward, just living for ourselves, hoping one day we'll get to the place we can relax, or we're anxious, worry about all the things that we can't even control. Would you help us to reorient through understanding the treasure of Christ, union with Christ, and longing for Christ? Christ. 